he gives uh, a very helpful description of the book of Psalms as a whole, and this is what he writes. He writes, the Psalms are our invitation to dialogue with God. Whatever our situation or whatever our emotion may be, we find it in the Psalms. The Psalms are God's word, the word of God, our words to God, and arguably the most incarnational book of the Bible. Athanasius was, Athanasius was right when he said that most of the scriptures speak to us. The Psalms, the Psalms speak for us. The beauty of the Psalms is that we have both sides of the conversation, the word of God in the fullness of God's revelation, and our response to God in the fullness of our human experience. And so what this means is that the Psalms are, are the place that you go to when you want to commune with God, when you want to know and experience God personally. And so your faith doesn't just feel like a one-way conversation, but when you engage in the spiritual disciplines that are rooted in the Psalms, you can experience the, the presence of God, the reality of God. You can hear God's voice. You can know the intimacy of God in a way that is unlike any other book of the Bible. And so I encourage you to make your way through all the Psalms, all 150 Psalms, and so that they would be a guide and they would direct you to both know the depths of your own heart and also the depths of God. And as we immerse ourselves in them, they can really shape what we think and what we feel so that we are thinking and feeling with God in all of life. And so the Psalms as a whole is our invitation to dialogue with God so that we might know Him personally as the one whose steadfast love never fails us. And when we look at the Psalms as a whole, one of the things that might surprise us is that so many of the Psalms are actually Psalms of lament. More than a third of the Psalms, a third of the 150 Psalms, are laments, which means that they are, are expressions of a cry for help, a cry of grief and sorrow. And so these kind of Psalms, the Psalms of lament, make up more than one-third of all the Psalms. And so if the Psalms are our guide to our prayer life, then in the same way, our prayers should reflect a similar proportion of lament, of our grief and sorrow in response to our broken and wounded world. And so the Psalms give us both permission to acknowledge, but also to process our griefs and sorrows directly to God in prayer. And they show us how to do so with faith, as we see in Psalm 42. Augustine, the great theologian, he loved the Psalms, and he wrote this about the Psalms. He says that, if the Psalms pray, then you pray. If it laments, you lament. If it rejoices, you rejoice. If it hopes, you hope. Everything written here is a mirror for us. And so you see that Augustine compares the Psalms to a mirror. And so what does this mean? Why are the Psalms a mirror? Because when you have a mirror, you can see your true physical appearance. And Augustine is saying that in the same way, the book of Psalms can act as a, as a spiritual mirror so that we can see our true selves, our true spiritual condition as God sees it. So we might see ourselves as we truly are. And you see this so clearly and so powerfully in Augustine's own life. He wrote the book called The Confessions, which is uh, one of the first autobiographies in, the Western, in Western history. And it's still considered one of the most 
beautiful ever written of one's own life because of the way that he understands his own heart and his own spiritual journey. And one thing we see is that from the first line to the last line of the book, you see how steeped Augustine is in the Psalms that almost every single page he alludes to and he cites individual Psalms all throughout every single book. He knew all the Psalms by heart, and so they gushed forth from his pen when he wrote. And so that you see as he wrote his story, he was using the language of Psalms. No one has ever written about their own heart as beautifully and powerfully as Augustine has. And we see that when you read Augustine, you can say that it is written in two languages, Latin and Psalms. And we see this to be true of so many of, great, of the great Christian leaders throughout history, that the Psalms are a vital part of their spiritual disciplines because they push us deeper into the depths of God and into the life of God. And they help us to know the depths of our own heart. And they help us to understand the ills of our heart so we know how to treat the feelings that we have. And so in the midst of the peaks and valleys of life, the Psalms speak powerfully to every human experience, to every human experience. And so that's why we should make a regular habit of just making our way through all the Psalms as often as we can. And last Sunday, we talked about the idea of spiritual depression, which we see in Psalm 42. And that's the experience of the absence of God's presence in our life. It's one of the most common conditions that we can struggle with, and even without realizing it. And that's why this psalm in particular is so helpful to us, because it can help us to better understand and diagnose this condition, this feeling of spiritual dryness, this feeling as if God is absent. And so today we're going to focus our attention on how this psalm points us towards Jesus and how we can experience God's presence most fully through him. And so let me read to you Psalm 42, followed by a short section from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. This is God's word. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. And while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, and all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is God's word. Well, as we see, this psalm so vividly describes this experience of spiritual dryness, this sense of absence of God in a person's life. At the same time, we also see how it points to hope, that there is hope woven all throughout the words of this psalm. So it points us towards hope, the hope of finding the presence of God in a way that can turn our sorrows into joy as we find God's presence in Jesus Christ. And so let's look at two themes from these two passages. Let's look at the theme of losing God and the theme of finding God. And so let's start by looking at what it means to feel as if you've lost God. And one of the metaphors that we see that the psalm uses is the illustration of spiritual dryness as the feeling of thirst. We see this in the opening verse as he writes in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And so the writer of psalm compares the feeling of the absence of God with that of a deer that's standing in a dried up riverbed where there was once flowing water and now it's all gone. And so the deer pants with his tongue sticking out and swollen as he waits for the rain and as he waits for the water to return once again. And it's not as if the writer of the psalm has lost his faith. It's actually the opposite. He mentions God more than 14 times in Psalm 42. And so he believes in God. He believes in God's existence. He doesn't doubt that God is there. But he doesn't have a sense of the reality of God as the living God. He has no personal sense of God, no direct sense of God. There's no connection. There's no personal sense that there's a God who's there, that a God who is dealing with him and he with God. And all that is gone. It has disappeared. And you see this in the series of questions that he asks. He asks, when will I see God? Literally in verse 2, it should be translated, um, when will I see the face of God? When will I see God's face? And then he asks, where is God? And then finally, God, why have you forgotten me? It's not that he believes that God forgets, because he writes that God's steadfast love is with him all the day long. But we see that these aren't intellectual questions about God's existence, because deep down, deep down in his heart, he knows that God is there. But he's lost this relational experience of God, of God's presence, the sense that that God is there. He can no longer taste God. He can no longer have any tangible experience of God in his life. And so he feels forgotten by God. There are many times in our own experience where the the presence of God can be sweet and comforting and it can produce joy in our lives when we worship God. His word touches your heart and it resonates deep within you. But then there are other times when that sense of reality and that sense of the goodness of God is gone. You've lost it. It's like you feel like that deer that's standing in that dried up riverbed waiting, panting for water. And the psalmist knows in his mind that God's steadfast love is with him. He knows that in his mind. And yet in his heart, he feels the absence of God, as if he's been forgotten by God. He's saying, I know you're there, God, but I've lost the sense of your presence in my life. I feel thirst, emptiness, and pain within me. It's a bit like how you might lose touch with a friend who has moved away, and you no longer have that that intimacy and that personal connection that you once had when you were able to connect all the time. 
God has become distance, and now there is an emptiness that God once filled himself. And practically speaking, there are ways that we can experience this ourselves. It's when, it's when our prayer life feels like a one-way conversation, or when we read the Word of God, we open it, and we no longer hear the voice of God as we read. And so there's, there's no obvious reason, but God is distant. Because we do see that there are many other psalms that talk about spiritual dryness as well. But those psalms connect spiritual dryness with sin. These psalms are often called penitential psalms. And there's a loss of God's presence that's connected to a transgression against God, which damages the relationship and which creates this distance. And we see Psalm 51, for example, as a, as a great example of a penitential psalm. This is a psalm where David the king prays to God, asking for forgiveness and asking for mercy after the sins he commit with Bathsheba and Uriah. And in Psalm 51, in verse 10 and 12, this is what he writes. He writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, he acknowledges that because of his sin, he is far off from God. He is separated from God. There's a loss of God's presence as a result of the things that he's done. And so the way to restore that relationship is to confess that sin, to ask for God's mercy, and to ask for God's forgiveness. And so he knows in that situation, in Psalm 51 and many others, that the distance that he feels from God is because of sin or unbelief or laziness. But that's not the case with Psalm 42, where there's an experience of the loss of God's presence, but it's not because of sin. In fact, there is no absence of faith. There's no obvious reason why God feels like he's disappeared. And so we see that spiritual dryness is not always the result of sin. But it, it's, not, it's not also an indication of weak faith either. Many notable Christian leaders have written about the either temporary or lifelong struggles with anxiety and depression. And one person who really stands out in this regard is uh, a man named Charles Spurgeon, who often struggled intensely with discouragement and with depression. And yet he was one of the most powerful and effective preachers in all of history. And at times, he even credited the strength of his faith by how much he struggled with God, by how much he struggled with discouragement and depression, and how much, therefore, he needed to cling to God through all those seasons of life. And we know this because he mentions his struggles in many of his sermons. One example of this is his sermon on uh, Jeremiah 6, 16. And on that occasion, he was speaking about the comfort of God, and this is what he said. He said, I know perhaps as well as anyone what deep depression of the Spirit means and what it feels like to feel myself sinking lower and lower. Yet at the worst, when I reach the lowest depths, I have an inward peace which no pain or depression of the Spirit can least disturb. Trusting in Jesus Christ, my Savior, there is still a blessed quietness in the deep caverns of my soul. Though upon the surface a rough tempest may be raging and there may be little apparent calm, if you have come to terms with God through Jesus Christ, the great reconciler, then there is for you the peace of God which surpasses all understanding 
which will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so Spurgeon reminds us that we can go through seasons of darkness where we need to walk with God or in times of darkness and pain. Yet even through the hardest seasons of life, we can know that God is with us, that God is for us, and we can have the peace of God even in the midst of those darkest days. And so there are seasons when we can feel as if we've lost God, as if He's forgotten us. But one of the things that is true of all the Psalms, of all the Psalms, is they all point, they all point towards Jesus Christ, who is our true hope, whose every yes and amen is to all the promises of God. They're found in Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that the refrain of this Psalm in 42, we hear these words again and again, hope in God, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Because the hope in God is to neither be an optimist or a pessimist. Because the psalm is not writing as an optimist, the, the psalmist, or he would write, I praise him, my salvation and my God, because that's just not true about how he is experiencing God in the present time. And so he's not trying to be overly cheerful, more than he actually feels. And so you don't need to be an optimist. You don't need to be an optimist to hope in God. But he's also not writing as a pessimist, or he would write, I do not praise him, because even in the midst of spiritual depression, he has not lost hope in God, so neither is he a pessimist. Instead, he writes as a realist who doesn't yet feel the joy of God and who experiences the heaviness of depression that hangs over him, but he tells himself, hope in God, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's not an optimist, nor is he a pessimist, but he's a realist. And he can, tell him, he can tell himself these things because of God's steadfast love, because of God's unchanging grace. We sang about it in our opening hymn. When darkness hides his face, I look to his unchanging grace. Right? And so when we go through the miserable emotion of darkness, we can know that this season will pass that this too shall pass. So we don't have to be downcast, but we can look to Jesus Christ, whose steadfast love never fails us. And so that's what it means to neither be an optimist or a pessimist. We don't have to deny our experience of spiritual dryness and pretend that things are really better than they are. We don't have to pretend. But neither do we, have, do we lose hope and give in to our emotions and lose hope that things will change and improve because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead shows us our future, and it can give us the confidence that we have to hope in God. We can confidently hope in God no matter how we're feeling when we place our hope in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ will never, never disappoint us, never, because God keeps his word, and God finishes everything that he starts. And so God's grace to us means that even when we fail, even when we fail, God never fails us. And so practically speaking, this means that we need to maintain our spiritual disciplines through all the seasons of life, no matter how we're feeling. So it's not that we should just pray and open the Word of God whenever we feel like it, but through all the seasons of life, even in the midst of God's absence, we need to go to the spiritual disciplines to read through the Psalms 
And they're called disciplines because that means that they're hard work, that they're always going to be hard. It's never going to be easy. And yet the Psalms are a model for us of how we do this hard work. And this Psalm in particular shows us what it means to, to not feel God, to not feel His presence, but to say, I'm going to pray to you about how I don't feel you. And we still go to God when we don't feel God. Right? So we don't let our, our emotions drive our relationship with God, but we let something deeper, the hope of God. Even when God is absent in the life of the psalmist, he names God again and again and again. We see this for over 14 times. And one of the reasons that we can trust God, even in the midst of the darkness, is that God has already fulfilled his promises in Jesus Christ. We see this. We see this, for example, in the second passage we read from John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. And this passage is part of a story of Jesus and the woman from Samaria. This was a time when Jesus was returning from Jerusalem, and so he was making his way north to the city of Galilee, and he chooses to take the shortest route from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is through Samaria. And while he was traveling, he stops by the village that's near Sychar, and here he meets a woman from Samaria at the place of Jacob's well. And it tells us that Jesus was wearied from his journey, and he was sitting beside the well around noontime, and his disciples have gone into the city to buy food, and there comes uh, a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink, which surprises her. And so this is what she says to Jesus. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman responds to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and the livestock. And, then, and Jesus says to her what's in our passage today. Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. Because the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is Jesus offering to her? What is this water? Well, it's what's in the opening verses of Psalm 42 that gives us the clue that we need because the water that Jesus offers Samaritan woman is the same water that the psalmist thirsts for. And Jesus tells her that the gift of God is ultimate satisfaction, that this water is ultimate satisfaction. When he says to her, I'm here to give you living water, he's talking about that which our souls long for more than anything else. Water is a great image because our bodies are made up mostly of water. 70% of, of who we are is water, and so we desperately need water, and we, are, and we absolutely cannot live without it. And so in the same way, when we're deprived of water, it is painful because that substance gives us life. But Jesus is saying, I have something that your soul needs even more than your body needs water. And there's nothing else, nothing in all creation that will satisfy that thirst that you have deep within you. And when you try to satisfy that thirst with anything else, it's like, it's like the experience of dying of thirst in the middle of the ocean, that 
salt water only makes it worse. And so for the things that we ultimately long for, when we try to, to fill these things with anything else, any other source, they will only leave us thirsting for more. Because in an ultimate sense, only God himself, only God himself can satisfy what you long for the most in the depths of your soul. Only God can, himself can satisfy what you long for most. We thirst for what only God alone can ultimately give to us. And so Jesus says that through him, this living water will become a spring within you that wells up to eternal life. And, and specifically, he was referring to the, to the gift of the Holy Spirit, which he'll say later in John chapter 7, which is God's very presence which dwells within those who receive Jesus. At the bottom of all our desires and all our longings is the desire for God himself to see and to experience the face of God. Everything else is but a shadow, but God alone is the true substance, the true reality, the true substance that will quench our thirst because nothing else will do that. Everything else will leave us thirsty because God alone is the true source of all that is good and all that is beautiful. And so the greatest gift that God can give us is the gift of himself, which he gives us through the Holy Spirit. And this gift is eternal, which means that its source is endless, so that as we go through the changing circumstances of life, God's grace can continue to well up from within us. And the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding the experience of God's presence, that when you become a Christian, God's Spirit dwells in you. And that Spirit unites you with God. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and gives us new spiritual life. And that's why Charles Spurgeon was able to say that yet at the worst, when I reach the lowest depths, I have an inward peace which no pain or depression of the Spirit can least disturb. Trusting in Jesus Christ, my Savior, there is a blessed quietness in the deep caverns of my soul. Because even in the midst of his lowest low, God continues to sustain him in the very darkest of nights. In the reflection quote that's in our uh, worship guide, there's a beautiful line from J.R. Tolkien's book, The Return of the King, which describes a scene where the young hobbit, Pippin, is sitting next to Gandalf, the wizard, and he studies the wizard's face. And at first, he sees only the lines of care and sorrow, the lines of a difficult life. But then when he looks more closely, more intensely, it says that he perceived underneath all that there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. That's the Christian. That's the Christian. Their faces may be etched with the lines of care and sorrow, but underneath it all is a great joy. There's a fountain of freedom and joy that were it to gush forth, it would be enough to set a kingdom laughing. That describes the kind of joy that we can have, the kind of joy that only the Spirit of God can give to us. And the spiritual disciplines are one of the ways that we receive that gift. That as we spend time in those disciplines, God, the Holy Spirit, begins to well up that joy in our life. It's like having a, a bank account that has an unlimited balance. And all we need to do is constantly go back to that bank 
and withdraw all that we want and all that we need. We just have to keep going back. It's ours to have. And so let me end with a prayer that the Apostle Paul prays to the Ephesian church about the Holy Spirit. This is what he prays. He says, I pray out of the glorious, out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how high and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, according to his power that has worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, our hearts are restless, truly restless, until they find their rest in you. Increase our sense of hunger and thirst for you. Enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, our hope and our salvation, that we may find our deepest joy, our deepest delight, and our deepest satisfaction in you. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Help us to know and experience your steadfast love for us each and every day so that we might be people who show forth your goodness and your grace to the watching world and to the honor and glory of your holy name.